Our guests today are sex educators working both with youth and adult populations. They created a program together called Beyond the Talk, which specializes in the intersections between sexuality and technology. We spent our time discussing sex abuse, sex education curriculum, body language, gender, and a number of other subjects. I had a wonderful time talking with these two. Here are my friends, Chris and Leah. Okay, well, to begin, go ahead and tell me a little bit about what you do. You're sex educators in Oregon, correct? Yes. Okay. And so, would you like to start? Sure. Okay. Well, Chris and I do many different things. Um, So, just want to share a little bit more about like our overall background because one piece of what we do is um, Beyond the Talk, which is an organization that serves um, adults uh, with sex education because we think that adults are lacking in their sex education since they didn't get a whole lot growing up in school. And so there's a big gap that needs to be filled. And so that is the primary purpose of Beyond the Talk is focusing on adult sex education. Um, but with that said, um, we both have backgrounds in working with youth in sex education as well. Um, I work for the state of Oregon implementing a sex ed curriculum for sixth and eighth graders. Um, and so that's where I split my time also doing that. Um, I also have a private practice and provide mental health therapy to folks that relates to sexuality and gender. So yeah, we're both kind of splitting our time doing all sorts of fun stuff. And one of the things I love most is working with Chris because Chris and I have known each other for forever. Yeah. Uh, we started working together back in 2009 and um, Chris has done work for um, the state of Oregon and my program that I work for. And so Eventually, we're like, hey, let's start a business. Let's start working with adults. We've been working with young people, and there's this gap. And so, um, yeah, that's how we started working together a few years ago in that capacity. Um, But I'm going to pass it over to Chris because Chris does some other stuff. Yeah, so I'm still on the advisory board of the curriculum that Leah works on. And let's see what else. I wrote a book a while back, so uh, a sex ed textbook for teens that's called Sexual Decisions. It's not that uh, exciting a title, but uh, that's proudly and sadly on many banned book lists now that banned books are getting out and about. Um, So I have that. That's still percolating around. It's a little, I mean, it's definitely out of date now. And then I also, uh, with a different colleague, have a podcast called Before You Swipe, the letter B, the number four, the letter U, swipe, uh, which is explores online dating because uh, a big passion of mine is looking at the intersections of sex relationships and technology. So everything from the science and the art of online dating all the way to sex robots. So um, that's another thing that I like to talk about as well. Very cool. Yeah, so we were talking previously about the history of sex ed. And so you mentioned that you have been kind of studying and figuring these things out since the 90s. Yeah, so in the ni- so I'm trying to think of actually how it all manifested, but the the basic story is that in the early 90s there was all this debate about whether to put condom make condoms available in high schools. And uh, being the sciencey nerd that I am, I knew the research that said that if you put condoms in schools, it does not encourage sex ed it, or it does not encourage kids to have sex. And so yet 
all these politicians were getting on and saying, if we put condoms in school, kids are going to have sex. And I was very annoyed by that and throwing socks at the television and decided like, oh, I was just going to go back to grad school to basically prove everybody wrong because that was like my attitude when I was in my early 20s. So that's how I got started. Well, kids are going to have sex whether or not they have condoms, aren't they? Well, right. Yes. And that was, that's the point of, well, A, logic. And B, <laughs> the research that was showing that. But you can kind of understand the the sort of non-scientific founded mentality of like, if we, if we give kids condoms or make them accessible, we're sending a message that it's quote unquote okay. Like it's, it's not the correct one from a scientific way, but I, I do have empathy for understanding how that perspective can happen. Yeah, but it's mainly rooted in religion, isn't it? I mean, I think that it, for some people, it might be rooted in religion and other people, it's just, you know, I think parents and caregivers want to keep their young people safe and healthy. And sometimes that's what they think is best intuitively. Sometimes it's connected to religion. Um, Yeah, I think at the end of the day, uh, most people want the same thing for young people, you know, which is to feel safe and healthy. And, you know, it's just... That approach is just not um, a super helpful one for young people because we know that young people engage in sexual activity. Um, and, you know, we also know that it's important to have a healthy relationship with your body and to understand your identity. And this stuff really develops, you know, from a young age. Um, and so we need to provide support to young people. You know, in Oregon, the uh, state policy is um, providing comprehensive sex ed kindergarten through 12th grade. Um, So that means that it starts really young um, and finding ways to really help um, young people like identify body parts in a medically accurate way and figure figuring out, you know, safe touch, you know, um, consent um, yeah, how to have healthy relationships with themselves and others from a very young age. And I think that's what Oregon does really well is we've got a very strong policy that supports this happening from a young age and done in an age appropriate way. So it's like the education that happens in, you know, kindergarten is not the same education that happens in 11th grade because you want to make sure it's age appropriate, but that it like all bu- builds upon each other. Um, so yeah, I, and yeah, I th- I think that it does come from a, a probably a very loving place when parents and caregivers, you know, have that fear. Um, but the research tells us, you know, especially in prevention, you want to target whatever behavior you're trying to support a few years before um, that young person engages in that behavior. So you don't want to target them right as they're engaging with that behavior. So we, you know, we have to start a little bit younger than people sometimes feel comfortable with. So what's the correlation that you've seen between this uh, education in Oregon and what happens further in life? Uh, If you compare it to other states, like if if you're teaching younger kids about what's right and wrong in terms of sex, do you find out later that there's not quite as much uh, sexual abuse because they know what it is? Well, it's interesting because the sex ed often will track things like uh, unwanted or just unplanned pregnancies more than abuse in those cases. So we do know that states that 
have comprehensive, non-shaming sexuality education, have lower uh, rates of pregnancy in younger populations, as well as lower rates of uh, sexually transmitted infections. I like your question about the lower rates of abuse. And I don't know if we can really correlate that. There's a couple of reasons. One is sometimes the data just stinks. And others is sometimes when we are more open to talking about issues related to unhealthy relationships that young people and older people, for that matter, will recognize the signs more. And so there'll be more reporting. So it looks like maybe there's a higher level. And it's not necessarily that there's a higher level of abuse happening. It's just more that there's a higher level of awareness and reporting. And so then the rates go up, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the, I think one of the worst things that can happen to a, a person is to be sexually abused in their youth, because that can ruin your life. I know it mainly happens to women in the experiences and conversations I've had with people. Mm -hmm. And you never get over that. It's something that happened to you when you're a little kid, five, six, seven, eight years old. It's with you forever, and it affects your relationships further down the road. So... I have three children and I strongly believe it's important to have conversations with them based on what I what level I think they're at. Mm -hmm. But from a very early age, uh, my ex-wife and I have always said, this is not right, you know, this is your private part. Nobody else touches it, nobody else looks at it. And so I think it's important to just let kids know that that stuff is bad, you know, so that they can prevent it themselves. I mean, some stuff you can't prevent, but at least if they have the knowledge, yeah. you know? Right. Well, yeah. and also, I mean, and Leah, you can definitely speak to this as well. And I, I would love to hear your thoughts. And yes, people who experience trauma early in life, it can impact themselves and it impact them and future times, but like when you're saying things like it ruins them forever or things like it that, can. like it, it can, right. And so that can be something that people though can also seek support. And also sadly, the rates of abuse happen there. It's frequent enough that we also know that it doesn't like many people either, uh, it doesn't impact them the way it impacts somebody else for various reasons or, they uh, do a lot of work, a lot of hard work to um, then maintain and establish healthy relationships and healthy, secure relationships. So it's not it's not over. And also, I like how you were sort of self-correcting yourself when you were sort of saying like, <laughs> well, you know, like, yes, we can teach our kids certain things and some things can still happen to them. It's yeah. not like, yes, we can teach that bodily autonomy. We can teach what is, you know, what is right and wrong in terms of consent, in terms of appropriate, age-appropriate sort of behaviors and things like that, and things can still happen. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, quality comprehensive sex ed is violence prevention, and I, that's another, I mean, there's so many reasons why quality comprehensive sex ed is so important. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, child sex abuse prevention is is a big part of of this and I do also want to come back to this piece around you know trauma in early childhood around sex sexuality you know ruining your life because I think part of um trauma is how it's handled by the people around you so you know if a person experiences a sexual trauma and 
they have a trusted adult in their life that is there to support them and listen to them, make sure that they're safe and that they're never around this person again and that they get therapy and, you know, they really work on healing. It's like that's going to be a different story than, you know, someone who's experienced, you know, sexual abuse and they told their mother and their mother didn't believe them or blamed them, right? Or they didn't feel like they could say anything at all. And so they're just holding it in for years and years and years and years. And then one day, you know, maybe they'll go to therapy and start working on it. And it's like, they're going to be in a different place than the child that had, you know, a trusted adult that really supported them with that. Um, and so even with that said, you know, I think healing is possible. I think it's just important to talk about this because so many people do experience sexual abuse and that if this has happened to you, that there is support and it's really necessary to access it because it just has a cascade of effects, you know, on a person's life and relationships and mental health. And getting that support is really essential, whether that be with therapy or other, you know, spiritual healing work that works for that person or, um, yeah, reading books that can support people with their mental health and trauma and that specific kind of trauma. So, yeah, I just want to put in a plug for um, the healing that is possible around that kind of trauma um, and the necessity for, you know, the prevention piece. So we make sure it doesn't happen as much as possible. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that's so interconnected to everybody because, I mean, I guess you don't have to have sex. You could you could be a monk your whole life. But more than likely, if you're a human, you're going to have sex at some point. Well, so I mean, it's, yeah. it's not quite as necessary or equatable with food, but it's something that everybody does at some point. And there's so many aspects to it and understanding the human that you're with and feeling safe and feeling like it's right and what your parents taught you. Like there's so much that goes into the backbone of it, but it's also how we exist. Like you have to do that to make a baby. Well, yeah, I mean, so some people need to do it to make a baby in order to, you know, I guess in from a pure Darwin standpoint, mm -hmm. although we are getting point in technology where, you know, a brave new world and we don't have to. And there's people who identify as asexual, right, that live very happy, full lives without engaging in any form of intercourse. I mm -hmm. mean, like, how do we define sex and what is sex and what, quote unquote, counts as being like having sex before? Um and so there's that. And then also some people will engage in several highly sexual acts that technically will never be the one that makes them a baby. So, you know, there's this idea that everybody has sex and the, you're right, the vast majority of people do in their own definition of what sex is. And then there are some people and they don't necessarily have to be monks. They definitely can be a monk, but that will eventually not engage in any form of sex and still have really fulfilling lives and relationships. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that in order for us to continue to exist, it has to happen. Oh, yeah. So it's very important that you explain certain things to children and to adults and help people work through that because it is, it's necessary in a lot of ways. In order just to, I mean, looking at it from the, the perspective of, prolonging the human race. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm fascinated with what you guys do and all the information and knowledge you have on this because it's such an important subject. And I don't 
know. It's, it's really hard to understand what we're doing right and what we're not doing right because we change our perspective on everything so often. And that's what it is to be a human and that's what it is to believe in science. You are constantly reevaluating whatever you think you know. And I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> uh, what you guys do is very, very important. Um, it, with, with all the work that you've done with children and all the work that you've done with adults, do you find it better to get in with them early on? Or do you find it more uh, rewarding to help people in their adulthood figure things out? I mean, because a child is still, their brain is still forming and changing. An adult, it seems like it would be harder to work with an adult because they're more set in their ways. I love all of it. I mean, I think working with people across the lifespan is so interesting. I mean, we need sex ed when we are, you know, really little. We need sex ed when we're in our 80s and 90s. Like it just, you know, thinking about how we reevaluate our relationship to sex and sexuality and how it changes across the lifespan. And there's different, you know, considerations and things to think about and new ways that we relate to ourselves and our health. And, you know, I, I love all of it for different reasons. Um, but yeah, I mean, working with adults around it can be so fascinating, especially, you know, for so many adults who did not receive quality sex ed and for many adults who, you know, grew up with a religious background that um, maybe really affected their lens around sexuality. There's a lot of shame for adults in particular. And this is why we want shame-free um, sex ed for young people to really like address some of the shame that starts to develop in childhood. But for adults, there's this like large amount of shame that many adults are working through around sexuality. And I find it really um, empowering, you know, to help um, adults understand where their shame is coming from, how it shows up, how it shows up in their body, um, and how to unpack it and how to transform it and how to have, you know, a healthier relationship to sex that isn't so um, deeply based in shame, because shame is such a painful part of sexuality for so many adults. And I, yeah, I think I think working on that shame with adults can be pretty pretty amazing. And then to see them, you know, heal and transform and have a different relationship with their body and pleasure and relationships. And I mean, it's pretty amazing the, the type of sex ed that can happen um, into adulthood. Um, and, you know, through the my private practice and therapy, I've certainly seen a lot of that transformation happen. What, what's the reason that religion is so uh, is so good at pushing shame? Why, why do they associate shame with sex? I mean, I think it depends on the religion, of course. And so a lot of them have a, a belief system that's sort of rooted in create, like, sex is for creating life. And that is one way to, again, like we were sort of talking about earlier, like one way to have sex is to create a life. And so when you're founded on that as your principle and it's limiting – and then other people don't really relate to sex and sexuality in that way, or it's 
there's just so many other, yeah, I guess I'll just leave it at that, that that's sort of where the sort of the shame breaks down and like, and a lot of religions will have very set rules on how things should and shouldn't be. And in some religions, there's very dire consequences if you don't um, follow those rules. And so when you find yourself in a position where you don't believe, like, inside, you don't feel that that's the right identity that you are embodying, or like, that's not what gives you pleasure, or you're feeling pleasure outside of this very strict, narrow definition of what sex and sexuality is, and you don't have any other modeling for what that is, you start to feel wrong. Um, and so that gets really challenging and difficult because then you have the vast majority of people feeling at some point in their lives wrong. Because mm. at one point, and again, some people, they you know, that's fine and they can sort of put, you know, blinders on or that's where they seek the most and get gain the most pleasure. But for other people, if they're masturbating or if they are engaging in a sexual activity that doesn't get someone pregnant or something like that, that they're like, oh, this is out like outside of that narrow line of what sex and sexuality is. Therefore, it must be wrong. And therefore, now we're going to feel bad about it because mm -hmm. we're doing something that's wrong. And that's oversimplifying. But because it's so like such a broad topic to try to just get mm -hmm. it down to the root of what it is. Well, it can happen. Since you've been doing this since the nineties, yeah. what what has shifted uh, oh gosh, so for much. for kids? Because it seems, and maybe this isn't true, but it seems like teenagers were having a lot more sex in the nineties than they do now. Yeah. Well, so what's changed in sex ed? And please add all the things that I'm about to forget. But some of it is just like so. Sex ed in the eighties and nineties was very much well. First of all, it was totally rooted in heterosexuality. Um, and it was totally rooted in this idea that uh, there's going to be a boy and a girl, and eventually they're going to want to have sex. And it's up to the girl to be the gatekeeper and to be the one that has to say no. Right. So like there's all these layers of gender roles and assuming who you're going to have sex with and assuming like what the kind of sex that you're going to have and all these things. And so so the script and the role plays that you would have in school would be like the girl, like the boy going, oh, come on, please. And the girl going, no, I, you know, like we need to wait. It's best to wait. Like, and so all that is now changed because it doesn't necessarily have to be a boy and a girl. It doesn't necessarily have to be like who is the one that's, you know, expressing desire. And also the idea of consent isn't just hearing a yes. It's also being able to understand and respect a no. And and things like that. So we've gone through, I mean, Deb Tolman was one of my early mentors who started to ask the question, and again, it back back when we were definitely doing more heteronormative stuff, but she was like, Well, what if the girl wants to actually say yes? Now then what happens, right? Like, you know, everyone was like, oh, You can't ask that question. You can't get federal funding for that. Um and she managed and she figured it out. But like starting with those questions and then just slowly expanding the idea of what it means to be in relationship with somebody and right and all those pieces so like that's a huge component and then that brings in ideas of validating and honoring people's sexual orientations and gender identities as well as different levels of sexual desire is not necessarily dictated by anything but your sexual desire basically what else yeah i mean 
I think so much, all those things that you just mentioned are so true. There's been so many changes in sex ed since I started in 2009. And before I started in 2009, Oregon um, had a policy that mandated abstinence only sex ed in Oregon. And then 2009 and beyond, it's been a comprehensive law that um, has been supporting the sex ed that is delivered in Oregon. And so, so much has changed over the years. And, you know, I would say just to kind of add on to what Chris um, just mentioned, um, that the sex ed now is so much more LGBTQIA plus inclusive. Um, You know, when I first started it, it wasn't much of a strong focus, um, you know, not as strong of a focus as it should have been. Um, and now we really think about we think about a person's intersecting identities and how the sex ed that is being delivered can support, you know, gender identity, sexual orientation, you know, race, ethnicity, like all the different identities that come together that affect a person and their sexuality. And, you know, really thinking about, like, how can we make sure that the sex ed really meets the needs of um you know, all the students in the classroom, which is a, it's a tough order. You know, it means that we have to keep reanalyzing the sex ed over and over again and and finding new ways to do better and be more affirming and inclusive of all the variety of, of students in the classroom. And, um, and that's something that has really been changing over the years. And I think it's moving in a direction that is really much more helpful to students. Um, the other piece is just like, you know, one place that we haven't really gotten to in um, sex ed in a really strong way, at least in Oregon, is figuring out how to address pleasure in sex ed. It's something that is kind of left out of the conversation. Um, I think a lot of schools are pretty timid about how to address it in a way that doesn't seem like it's encouraging it. Um, But you'll notice that in a lot of sex ed curriculum out there that there's not really much of a mention of pleasure. It's kind of the elephant in the room. Isn't that the whole point? (laughs) <laughs> well, unless you're back to the procreation model, right? Where that if the purpose of sex is to procreate, maybe, I mean, especially from a, a the body that I'm sitting in, which is a cis female body, right? Like uh, this body could get pregnant and it could not feel good at all. <laughs> Their good pleasure might not sure. play any role in it. Sure. Um, and so there's, there's that component. Um, Yes, we would like to think it's the point. And again, back to like, what does a healthy relationship look like? That that at least there's, you know, that when people are together in a sexual way, that there's also joy and there's pleasure and there's trust and there's respect, right? All these things that can happen. And if, if there, yeah, if there's not joy in it, like that's probably not a great sign kind of idea. Ian. Well, I find it interesting that you said that Oregon was teaching abstinence until 2009. Because I went to school in Oregon. I don't remember them teaching that. Where'd you go to school? In the Dallas. Did you get sex ed in the Dallas? Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe that's what they taught, but I don't remember them promoting abstinence. Okay. In that way. Yeah. And that was in 95 or 6 or 7. Yeah. I mean, there's such variation across the state, depending on what school district you you know went to school in. And even now, even with the policy that we have in place, there's still a lot of vi- variation with um, sex mm. ed from one school district to another in Oregon and, and how much people are actually like following the policies that are in place. So you may have been 
you know, a lucky one that got better sex ed. I know for me, I didn't have any sex ed and I went to school in Oregon as well. Um, and I didn't have any sex ed until um, my senior year. Um, and then I had some textbook information um, for a few weeks. Um, yeah. And that was it. Senior year. So did you go yeah. to school in a small town? No, I went to school in um, Beaverton. They didn't teach you until you were a senior? Yeah. They were teaching us in seventh grade. Well, wow. and that's where, yeah. That's like, cool. Right? So you had a teacher that saw the importance and- Well, it was just part work. of the health curriculum. That's great. Yeah. But a teacher, like, wow. I mean, even again, like back to what Leah's saying in terms of the the policies, right? So you can have like, I mean, I'm going to start- you correct me if they say, but like there's the state policy and then there's a school's going to adopt a, like the district's going to adopt a certain mm. curriculum and then a school's either going to make that curriculum easily accessible or not for the teacher. And then the teacher shuts their classroom door and then who, right? Like then something else can happen. And so, you know, ideally we want all those things aligned um, where there's a policy about medically accurate, shame-free, LGBTQ inclusive, comprehensive sexuality education. That's what the law says. Ideally, we now have a school district that adopts a curriculum that matches that. And then ideally, the school district, the school itself supports it. And then ideally, the teacher teaches it, right? But there's so many places in that little chain that I just outlined that where it can break down. In your case, it might be the flip where the policy, I believe, in Oregon actually wasn't, it was, if it was taught, okay, it, like it, it wasn't. So first of all, sex ed wasn't mandated to be taught in Oregon, and it had to have an abstinence focus to it. Hmm. So like there was sort of that. But then again, the teachers like your teacher could have been like, well, screw this. I'm gonna like these kids need to know about condoms, or like these kids need to know like, and so brought it upon themselves to sort of provide you with the information that they thought, or the school district went, well, you know, this is what our community needs or our community is asking for or whatever. And so, cause you know that if some parent was like raising a hissy fit over the sex ed you were getting, you know, that shit would have gotten shut down mm -hmm. in the Dallas. So something about your community was supportive of that hmm. back when you were in high school. Seventh grade. Oh, right. In seventh grade. <laughs> yeah. I know. I can't yeah. remember. I went to school in New Jersey, like public school system in New Jersey. So we had, we had some sex ed. I don't remember when we learned about the condoms and the pill and things like that, but like the stuff, so I'm older. So this wasn't, so now I'm in the eighties, but I also remember the things that were stressed were things like, what is the difference between gonorrhea and syphilis? Like the, we don't teach that anymore. No one freaking cares if like what, what STI you have, what we now teach is like, there are different STIs. A lot of them don't have symptoms. And if you have any form of symptom, get your butt to like a healthcare provider and see how you can maybe fix that. Like, mm -hmm. and if you can't necessarily cure it, as in a bacterial one, like maybe you can treat it for a viral infection. But don't assume you're you don't have a, a STI just because you don't have symptoms. Step one. Step two. If you have <laughs> symptoms, get them looked at. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what it is, right? Like from a, like again, I got tested on like oh. Which one's the one with the discharge? Which one's the one with the chancre? Like, it, who cares? If your genitals look different and it's not feeling good, go go get that looked at. Like, that's the message. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think there's just a lot of shame associated with all those different yeah. things. And yeah, I just wonder, I wonder if we're doing it wrong in terms of high school 
the elementary, junior high, and high school curriculum, I think, first of all, there should be more focus on critical thinking because a lot of people don't know how to use their brains. A lot of people just ingest whatever they're told and don't really question anything. And so you have a very, very uh, math-based curriculum and I mean, all the subjects, but it just, it seems like kids are getting taught stuff that they aren't going to need later. And it seems like it would be far more beneficial to them to learn about how to treat humans and to learn about pleasure and sex and critical thinking and how to investigate different ideas for yourself. I mean, but I don't think anybody at the top wants that to happen. You don't want your population questioning everything. Yeah, I mean, I know that there's a lot of sex educators, you know, across the state that do want that. And there are administrators and teachers and parents and students and caregivers that are like, they do, they want, you know, quality sex ed where, you know, students are thinking critically and they're analyzing, you know, what they're seeing in the media and in pornography. And um, yeah, I'm, I I think that there's a lot of people who do care, even in like leadership positions that would like to see, you know, us do better and better when it comes to sex ed. Because, yeah, it's one of the most important subjects. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there who, you know, in other subject matters, maybe they're not going to use the geometry that they learned in in the way that maybe a few students will but like sex ed it's like so many people can benefit from that information and yet it's not something that um you know communities are emphasizing as much as something as geometry and and math and you know i think part of it is just people are afraid you know it's a contentious subject um it's scary you know if you have a couple of parents or caregivers that are upset and um, you know, administrators don't always want to deal with it. I mean, it's a big job for administrators that they're dealing with a lot, you yeah. know, especially over the last few years. And so I think sometimes it's just like, you know, it's easier to not do it or to take this one part of the curriculum out because I don't want to deal with any pushback. And I get it. And, you know, it's a contentious time. And, and at the same time, it's like the students really miss out on vital information that could really, you know, benefit their relationships with, you know, with themselves, with others, you know, this is really life-saving information and life-enhancing information and skills. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm I'm hopeful for for sex ed because it's it's changed a lot since I started, and I feel like you know it's going in a in a direction in a lot of areas that that it's really you know more comprehensive and more quality and more more caring sex ed so right and if you're yeah. an adult like so teachers are adults like we know like i mean in a school <laughs> um, we can learn from young people very much so but like in a school the teacher's an adult that adult grew up with their crappy sex ed and they're possibly not very good role models so like how are we supposed to expect this teacher to all of a sudden be like this awesome sauce like perfect person to sort of be, like they need to get trained and a lot of teachers don't get trained and so like there's that and like it's and this is also why I think I like working with adults too, is this like we can recognize and reflect and have that sort of like with the right questions and the right discussion, like have this critical thinking of like, oh yeah, these were the messages I got when I was a kid and I, I couldn't talk about it. And like, why do I expect now 
like when I'm about to engage in this really intimate act with another person, what makes me think I'm going to have all this great language for it? Or what's going to make me think that I'm going to have this wonderful language about how I want to have this, this sort of like, I I to use quotes again, but like atypical relationship with somebody that's like more platonic, but has a romantic component to it. Or I want to be a makeout buddy with somebody, or I want to do this. Like we don't have the language. We've got like, there's friendship and then there's like people we screw and then there's maybe people we like form a monogamous relationship with. And mm-hmm. I know there's so many more intricacy, intricacies with that, but yet we end up with these like three scripts of like types of relationships when it's like those categories can break down really easily into very meaningful things. But adults, we don't have the language to negotiate those with each other. Well, it's also, it seems like a difficult subject to teach broadly amongst a a number of different types of people. When you're a math teacher, two plus two is four. Right. It's more rigid. It's more definitive. It's, you can't really question it. And, And sex is just so broad and ever changing. But that's where we go back into the, like the fundamentals of like consent and communication. And there's more than what, so like when you're looking at, like when we talk about sex ed in kindergarten, we're not talking about how to have sex or sexuality or things like, like what is, what is consent, like what is asking for something and asking permission, right? Because then that can translate over to asking for other things, like you want to share a toy. We also know that we can teach kids in kindergarten, like have everyone in the classroom draw their family, right? And then you put those on the wall and you can see, oh, look at all the different kinds of families there are in the world. Like in this classroom, not everyone's family looks the same. There's mm-hmm. different families. The end of lesson, that's all the, that's the lesson is that we, there's more than one way to have a family. And that can over time translate into there's more than one way to have a relationship or there's more than, right? And there's different kinds of families and kids can sort of build on those things like Leah was saying. Like we, we build on those skills. And the same thing with the consent. You don't just grab the toy from the other kid in kindergarten. You ask if you can play with the toy later. And if they say no, you don't scream and shout until you get your way, right? Like that's not what we do. We, you know, we engage in, again, like hearing no's, saying no's, and then learning the value of of being kind to each other, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's sex ed. Hmm. You guys know what Neuralink is? No. It is uh, some portion of a computer that um, they insert in your brain. And the goal initially is to help Alzheimer's patients, uh, which is really cool. But the, the forecast is that eventually you won't have to talk to people anymore. You're going to have this computer chip in your brain. You're going to be able to read. Uh, well, not even read. You'll be able to communicate telepathically. So you'll always know what everybody's thinking. And to me, that could, it could make a lot of things better. It could make a lot of things worse. The deal with interacting with other humans is you have to read body language and you have to hear their voice and you have to look at their eyes and you have to kind of decipher what's happening. And it's very complicated sometimes. Like I'll go few weeks ago, I was at this party and I was talking to this girl and I was very attracted to her. And I could tell within 30 seconds, she didn't want anything to do with me. Mm-hmm. And she ended it by saying, I'll never forget. It. She's like, uh, 
what was your name again? I'm like, Cody. And she goes, my name's Katie. I'm going to go over here and talk to these people. And I was just like, yeah, that's exactly how that was going to go. She didn't want anything to do with me. Right. You, I don't know that you can teach that. It's very difficult with everything that's going on inside each individual person. It's very difficult to teach people how to recognize body language and understand all this type of stuff. And to, to bring it back to what I was saying with Neuralink, that's the beauty of interacting with people and being attracted to someone and trying to figure out if they like you. You have to figure all that out. You can't just know what someone else is thinking. So that's yeah. what's so exciting about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say that, you know, part of quality sex ed is, is learning about communication um, and being able, first of all, to identify your own boundaries and feelings and what you need, and then also communicating this stuff with other people. Um, and there are some really important skills in that. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about. It's like, it's not just about reading body language. It's like, we need to talk to each other and say, you know, what we need, what we want. You know, it sounds like this person that you were talking to is like, I need to go over here. She was communicating something to you. And it wasn't just, you know, body language. It was that communication that helped you understand that like she wasn't so interested, yeah. you know, for whatever reason, or maybe she like was tired or maybe she's feeling drained or she's introverted and it was a lot of talking or she's got a headache. You know, it's like, it's so hard to know what is going on with people. Mm -hmm. But when we're in relationships, it's like, you know, whether it's someone new that we're just meeting or someone that we've been in a relationship with for a very long time, it's like we need to be communicating this stuff with other people so we don't feel like we need like a, you know, AI brain chip put into our brain so we can read every, it's like we can also like do a better job like communicating with each other and also identifying how we feel and what we want and what we don't want and um, and I think that's very much a, an important part of, of comprehensive sex ed is um, helping people understand what their boundaries and needs are and feelings are and, and communicating that. Do you think traditionally that women are better communicators than men? I think women have been, it, people who are raised female have been like able to have a fuller range, like socialized to have a fuller range of emotions and are able to like get socialized, I think, to see role models where emotions happen like on a larger spectrum and things like that. So there's definitely that component. Um, and I think we're getting better with that as we break down gender binaries and sort of things. I also remember when I was, so again, cause I'm a little older than the two of you, there's this movie called Free to Be You and Me, and uh, it was Marlo Thomas from That Girl, which is like a way old sitcom. But like, at any rate, it was this hippie 70s movie that we would see every year in elementary school. And Rosie Greer, who was a uh, famous football player at the time, sang a song called It's All Right to Cry. And so it's like, hey, you have this huge honking football player, like with his little, like, it's all right to cry, you know, like singing that. And like, there was like, and it was really just breaking down gender stereotypes. And, and a lot of it, some of it was about women can be athletes, but a lot of it too was about like, boys can express emotions and play with dolls. And if you want to, you know, like you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up, hence mm -hmm. the free to be you and me. And so we have had these messages and they sort of fluctuate in and out of the eras. And so again, 
as this kiddo that grew up in like the sort of more late seventies, you know, hippie time, um, there was a time where people were encouraging that more. And then, so it's might, there might be some generational waves to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree that there's such a generational component to communication. Cause I just, I think back to like my grandparents and my great grandparents sort of like, was anybody communicating anything? Like, regardless of gender, it's like, you know, I think that communicating your feelings and your needs and your boundaries, it's like, I think young people today are really being kind of raised more in that environment of learning about this stuff. And they're going to, you know, be able to communicate in their relationships on a whole other level than like in my lifetime where I didn't learn about that stuff growing up. And I started learning about it through trial and error and in my relationships. And so I think that, you know, so many of us have so much to learn about communication and, and the, you know, previous generations just were not communicating, you know, they didn't talk about their relationships in the same way, you know multiple generations back yeah. that they're that they aren't doing now. And I also don't know culturally if that's true, like where I, I mean there could be somebody listening from insert other country here or other you know, and being like, haha, you guys are funny, like we talked all the time or something like that, mm-hmm. right? I'm just talking from my mostly Eastern European upbringing. That yeah, really... I mean, there's exceptions to every rule, but yeah. We're, we're but I don't know if this, generally. I don't know if we're, well, I don't know if we're talking generally. That's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking generally from the North American culture that the three of us grew up in. But sure. are we talking generally if we're looking like at other communities? I, I honestly, I don't want to sit there and do like a population breakdown, but like, <laughs> you know, who knows like yeah. where other places are going. Well, where yeah. They, they... Uh, the other thing that, that comes to mind is in terms of communicating and how things have fluctuated and changed, it seems like there's a lot less face-to-face. And so uh, there's a lot more communicating being done now via phones, which is why when I said earlier, I don't think kids are having sex as much as they used to. Mm-hmm. I've read that a number of times, and maybe it's not true, but I've read it a bunch. And it, as far as I know, it's because people get, younger kids like Gen Z get more satisfaction out of communicating through apps and, and uh, digitally that they aren't hanging out as much. And so that's why I've read that teenagers aren't having as much sex because they're not physically in person. So yes, on the data that they're not having as much sex. And I, I actually, I, I gave a talk several years ago about this because of course the crisis before was that kids were having too much sex, right? And now all of a sudden the crisis is kids aren't having enough sex. So, right. Mm-hmm. So basically we're always going to say that there's something wrong with kids today, right? And so, so our, like this current thinking, I mean, so obviously COVID, like for the last three years has put like this huge other chunk of complexity on top of it. And I think there's, so the internet and smartphones has definitely played a huge role in the, in, in the way we communicate with each other. And then we lay on top of that, the ideas that all of a sudden it became not safe for kids to go out to the park by themselves or go to the mall by themselves and have this autonomy of being able to to push limits and be like and gain these in like gain independence um because there's like their their days have to be so structured and certain so like there's that so like okay well i i want to 
interact with my friends, how am I going to interact with them? Well, I have to interact with them on these devices because I'm not allowed to go to the mall anymore or I can't ride my bike to school or whatever that is, right? Like there's this, there's these like forces that all came together to basically cause this like phenomenon where we do have kids and I can't remember what year it happened, but where it was tilted in the direction where kids did start to say, like, I prefer to communicate by text message over phone. Yet, the data that we did together right before, so 2019, was when kids, when it came down to serious conversations, when kids wanted to talk about difficult things here in Oregon, there was like a survey of them. And the vast majority, it was like 80 something percent wanted to do it face to face with their parents, with with their friends, that they they do recognize, and again, COVID's probably messed this all up, but there was this idea that the co- the tough conversations and those things, they want that face-to-face interaction. And they're less practiced in it, as you're saying, because of, because of the te- technology. And again, now COVID's really screwed this all up, so I don't know what, what's going on anymore. Yeah, I think it gets back to the body language thing and understanding what people are really trying to say with that they're not saying. And we've been interacting face to face in person forever and things are so much different now. And I think there are some people who prefer to interact via their phone, which can make you weird. I think it's a great medium for a lot of things, but I don't know that anything can replicate what we're doing right now. And that's why, that's why I'm not a fan of Zoom calls. Uh, I'm also not a fan of talking on the phone. I hate talking on the phone. You have no visual cue what's happening and you always talk over each other and then you have to repeat. And this, what we're doing right here is so much different than every other way of communicating. And I think it's so important to understand, but that's that's what I'm curious about is where we go. The phone's not going to go away. This is where we're at. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that young people like a balance of in-person and virtual and technology. Like, because, you know, some of the events that I've been coordinating over the last couple of years have turned virtual and they were in person and young people would get together and get to meet each other and hang out and eat pizza and like get to become best friends in these different ways. And then these events became virtual and, um, you know, we had to get on Zoom and, you know, have folks like try to get to know each other, you know, from this kind of medium and I've heard from multiple of those teens, like, oh, I just want this to be in person. Like, I can't wait. Like, there's nothing better than like just being able to chill and hang out. And so I, I do think that, you know, that young people still do value that and they like a mixture of it. Like sometimes they do want to hop on Zoom for a meeting, you know, instead of getting in person and having to, you know, be dropped off somewhere and, you know, deal with their homework. You know, it's like, it's just easier to hop on Zoom, you know? Um, so I think that, you know, this like hybrid kind of model that we've kind of moved towards because of, you know, COVID moving things so virtual and now we're kind of back to in-person and sometimes virtual. It's like, I think that there's a, a hybrid approach that 
I, I know for myself, like I prefer that too. Like sometimes I like in person and sometimes I'd rather just be virtual. Um, and I, I think the same for like the way technology is used that, you know, if it gets really out of balance and, you know, it's like the only way a young person is communicating is, you know, through video games with their friends or, um, you know, through apps and, you know, technology that like maybe it could feel out of balance and make them feel kind of yucky, like it's too much. And then for other people who are very, very introverted, you know, it's like maybe that is how they want to be interacting and that feels better to them. So I, I don't know. I feel like there's it's so nuanced and, and complex and there's positives and there's negatives to all of it. Um, and I think it's just important that we find a balance with it all. And I hear from young people all the time that they want a balance with it. It's like, you know, they'll say, I just feel like I've been on my phone way too much. I've been TikToking way too much. I really want to set boundaries with myself. And I've heard that from teens in therapy before, you know, it's like they're thinking about this stuff. Um, so yeah. And, and I think we could fold all of this stuff into, you know, quality comprehensive sex ed. I, I know I keep coming back to it. They're like, this could be in sex ed. Right. Um, because it, you know, helping young people really understand, um, how to have a balanced approach to technology and communication and in-person versus virtual. It's like, it's really important to support them to kind of analyze for themselves. Like, what feels really like healthy for them and what they need around it. Well, and didn't you, I mean, this is, I agree totally with, with what you're saying in terms of back to, yeah, how are we in relationship with other people and, and this whole concept of virtual and most, you know, we're getting there because it's been long enough since we've been relying on technology and the internet and things like that, that people are now adults and thought leaders that can sort of, who were, you know, we're born knowing technology, unlike someone like myself, who like, you know, was much older when technology first started really coming into play in the in these ways. Uh, they are the ones who are going to be able to like, get us good sex ed lessons on how to how to find that balance when you've always grown up with it, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to those of us who started not growing up with it, and then and going that way. And then the other piece too, and I can't remember what lesson it was or something, but like there are some times where we do teach about body language in the classroom. So we'll like show pictures or videos and be like, what do you see in this person? Does this person look like they're saying yes, enthusiastic, like expressing quote unquote, like an affirmative, like enthusiastic yes. Like what does that look like? And so they'll have various ways of like someone saying like, you know, like, will you, you know, can I have a sip of your water? And the person going, Sure, and handing it to them, right? Uh -huh. Versus like, can I have a sip of your water? Uh, sh sure, sure. You know, like that kind of thing. Like, okay, what was the difference between the first offer of the water and the second one? Like, you know, do you think the person really meant it the second time? And it's just like, no, because they didn't, you know, like, or what made you think that the first person really was fine with you? Well, they put the water towards me. Their voice went up. They, like, smiled, right? Like, and the other person, like, kind of shied away and grabbed their water when you asked mm -hmm. and still said yes. But is that really a yes, right? So we can teach those sort of body language and then ultimately still say you can't completely rely on body language and you can still really read it. And so you can teach kids these things. Um, and they're really good at picking it out, right? Like, especially if you're like, what do you think? And then they're like, that's bullshit. <laughs> or like, <laughs> that's like, oh, or like, no, no, I, I believe that person when they're saying yes. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, what was I just remember telling yeah. some pictures. Yeah, um, the, uh, there's a consent lesson that we deliver where there's yeah, okay. an image of two people, and the students are asked to decide: is there consent in this picture or not consent in this picture? So around this idea of reading body language. Yeah. So yeah, it's absolutely important to be able to read body language and. And also get the verbal consent as well. And yeah. we also recognize that some people are nonverbal. And so like, you know, there's also that to think about that like getting really skilled at reading body language is important. And also like using words, you know, when possible, like is absolutely a skill that we need to be practicing. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so I want to ask about what what do you guys think is the situation with gender and fluidity and everything that's happening right now because there's so much more focus on people being non-traditional uh, in terms of, I mean, there's so many different things to call yourself now. And I'm curious why this is so prominent. This wasn't a discussion 15, 20 years ago, and now it seems to permeate every piece of our culture. I kind of wish it had permeated every piece of our culture. <laughs> I don't see it that way. I, d I mean, I think there's, it's been a slower evolution. I think that we're maybe ramping up a little bit on it. And I think it's this idea of, again, seeing and respecting different identities. Um, there's as we are getting more sophisticated in our thinking and we're breaking out of the gender binaries more. And I mean, yes, it is definitely more visible now. And yeah, I, I'm trying to think at like societally, like where it's, it's been so much more of a slow roll, I think from my perspective on, on this. And at the same time, I think there have been, breakthroughs in terms of there's not more like this idea that there is a way to be this gender and there is a way to be this gender like as we have really started to challenge like well wait a minute and I think part of that is like different cultures and like we're not being I'm going to say this very carefully we're not being as white centric as we have been and we still are really white centric so I wanna, and so like there's that component and there's like just other like just honoring ways of diff, different ways of being and respecting people for who they are and some laws and policies that have happened i think there's just so much that's happened that people again i think it's that case of like they're just more free to express actually who they really are instead of trying to like force them selves as a square peg into that round hole that we've like sort of forced choice people in so for so long. But you, do you think this has been something on people's minds forever and they can just say it now? You yeah. think in the 50s or the 1850s or the 1700s that people had these same feelings and they yeah. just didn't know how to express it? Yeah. 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 I, I think that, um, People are getting the language to describe their experiences. Um, but yeah, I mean, being trans or non-binary or two-spirit, it's like this is something that's existed for, you know, a very long time throughout history and the world. And, um, you know, there's more and more language to describe people's experiences. You know, I've worked with um, trans people who, 
you know, came out much later in life and they say, it's because I didn't know the words to describe what I have been experiencing since I was three years old. Mm -hmm. And, and I tried to, you know, I tried, um, the, like calling myself bisexual to see if that did the, the, the trick around my identity. And it's like, no, that didn't quite do it. And it's like, oh, then I learned that, you know, you can be transgender or non-binary. And it's like, oh, yes, that that explains how I've been feeling my whole life. And, you know, and then also there's talking about like the internet and ways that people connect virtually online. It's like there are LGBTQIA plus communities that, you know, young people in rural parts of the country are connecting to and learning about like, you know, these different ways of experiencing gender and sexuality and it's just connecting with people you know to to have community accessible online and to have role models and to see people you know in the media like Laverne Cox you know it's like there's a, there's more representation that's happening like little by little in the media and um, and also just the the education, the language, like sex ed is all about la- like defining terms and language and, you know, just making sure that people understand, you know, these different um, identities that a person can experience. And it's always evolving. It's like, I mean, the sex ed curriculum that I work for, it's like we're always updating these definitions because they're always changing. And as people are you know, developing more understanding about gender and sexuality and really kind of analyzing the nuance and all the different ways it can show up. It's like there's new language that shows up. And then we as sex educators go, okay, so now we're hearing that this is actually, this is a term that many people are using. Now we're not going to use this other term. It's like it is ever evolving and changing. And yeah, young people are really growing up in this environment of learning about this, you know. And what does it mean to be, like, again, gender expression through the ages? Like, I'm going to totally botch my history lessons here, but you talked even about, like, the 1700s and the 1800s. I mean, have you seen pictures of Louis XIV? Like, you know, like, that was very, quote unquote, masculine back in that day where, like, the big powdered wig and the heels and the tights, you know? And so to sort of say that our gender expression and and things like that but again i you know to leah's point about language that like maybe there's more of that too but this is sort of understanding of like well what does it mean to be you know a gender as opposed to a gender so i didn't want to do it that way but like a gender agent like this idea it has evolved over time across different communities and cultures and so and so now i think too with the world like like we have got more globalization so we can see more manifestations of how to quote unquote do gender. But like, I think I don't remember what year I read Kate Borenstein's hidden agenda. It was decades ago. I can tell you that. And that book was, you know, like that book's been around. So it's, it's just, it's interesting, but yeah, I agree. It's definitely more visible. And it's like, I think people as they are in community, then can find each other more and then be visible enough to then create policy to be like, where's my bathroom? Right? Like, where's this, you know, how does this, how does this work? Well, where does it go though? Do we just get to a point where everybody's a person? Sure. Like why do, I mean, do we need titles at all? I know a friend, I have a good friend who uh, would agree with that. And then we push back to be like, well, well, what about that, like a person who's trans that's finally fought so hard to have the the pronoun that they want, and then, 
like, and then just go, just kidding, no more pronouns, right? Like, like, where's the honor in that? But sure, like, I, I don't, I mean, for me, again, I do identify as cis female, but if someone was like, okay, we're not going to call you she anymore, I'd be like, all right, whatever, that's fine, who cares? Yeah, it just seems if there's so many options, and it's really not limited to anything other than who you feel as a person, there's 8 billion different people. There could be 8 billion pronouns, right? Or just one. Or just one. I mean, because, I mean, the, the, the only way to look at it um, evolutionarily is that, I mean, what does it take to make a person? What are those two, is it two elements? Is it a man and a woman? Well, n no, because now we know about, like, all the different ways technology can support it doesn't take that. It takes a womb. That's all it takes. Yeah, I don't even know if it takes a womb anymore, does it? Yeah, I think we. I don't think we can actually make something outside of a human body yet. Huh. So I think it takes a womb. I mean, it takes it takes some sperm, and it takes some eggs. Yes. And then so that takes that fertilization. And that fertilization to mine can be done anywhere, right? So that doesn't need people. I mean, well, it needs people to make the sperm and the eggs. And then it needs to get put into a human body that has a womb or a, you know, a uterus. And yeah, a, I'm know. just I'm just wondering. That's it. And it could happen, you know, between trans and, and non-binary folks who would not right. identify so as a man and yeah, a woman. So it's not necessarily a man and a woman as well. Right. So good point. And there's two, like, or two cis women can have a child, but they need sperm from a body that had sperm and donated those right so like there's all sorts of again permutations and connotations like like it's just no and at the end of the day like if these if these identities and labels help people feel um better in their bodies and um is helpful to their mental health which i have seen you know when working with folks who transition um you know, does it really matter? Like if people are feeling better when they have labels and identities that connect to their experience, if it helps them feel less alone in this world, if it helps them make sense of who they are, does it really matter to, to you, to me? I mean, it's like, for me, I just want people to feel, you know, as connected to themselves and safe and comfortable as possible. And so if there's a, a identity that really like speaks to them and they, you know, are really connected to it. Yeah. Like that really matters. And to make sure that other people affirm their gender identity is also really important, you know, and use the correct pronouns and use the name that they're going by. It's like that, that's all, that's really like life affirming kind of, um, you know, ways to interact with other people. So I think at the end of the day, it just, it's such an individual experience. And it's like, if it's going to help someone's experience in this world, why does it matter? It's just interesting to me because I think a majority of the human experience is being unhappy with who you are. People get plastic surgery. They get haircuts. They dye their hair. They uh, transition. They, everybody does something because they're unhappy with what they are. And I don't know, does, is anybody just happy? Does anybody just look in the mirror and go, 
everything's awesome. I mean, is that the point of life just to feel happy? Like, in my opinion, it's like, it's to feel the range of emotions. Like we put so much emphasis on happiness as the only emotion that is the valid one that we all need. It's like to be a human is to experience a range of emotions, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. and people do things like get a haircut or, you know, whatever it may be. It may be because they're unhappy or it may be because it's like, oh, this is how I love myself. You know, when I get a haircut, this is me showing myself how much I care about me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like people do these things for lots of different reasons. Um, and yeah, I just want to point that out about happiness because as someone who grew up kind of with that perspective of like happiness is the be all end all, it's all about happiness. It's like, wait a minute, the like feeling a full range of emotions like that is what it is important to me as a human. Well, it's, it, it's fleeting too. You can't just be happy all the time. Right. Like well, you haven't, you don't have anything to compare it to. Right. And also, I mean, not for nothing, but the, you know big business and capitalism and stuff has spent billions of dollars trying to convince us that we should not be happy with the way we look, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so, you know, a, you know, a one-year-old isn't like, that is not looking in the mirror going, oh, I don't really look like how I look. My hair's growing in funny, right? Like they're not doing that. They're yeah. just like, they're just existing with whatever their self-construct is as a one-year-old. And it's only with, external messages that we get from the media, from family, from like just looking at the world around us that we are quote unquote, not supposed to like how we look. And you're right. Like, and we do that with like busyness culture too. Like when was the last time you saw somebody where like, Hey, how's it going? And the person was like, you know, I'm doing really good. I'm just chill. I don't really do very much. It's great. <laughs> like, right. Like we don't have like in our, in our Western society, like people be like, what the hell are you talking about? We're supposed to say, I'm doing great. I'm super busy. Of course, I'm doing all these things, but I'm fine. Right. Like that's supposed like, that's how we're supposed to answer it. And so like, it's challenging this sort of construct of like, well, yeah, like what is healthy? Like what are the, you know, expressing the range of emotions is healthy. Like sometimes thinking you look like crap. Yeah. Sometimes you look like crap and that's fine. It's not like the end of the earth and you always have to fix it. And sometimes you're like, I, I look fucking hot. I'm great. Yeah. I'm doing good. Well, I don't know about you guys, but also this is a, a horrible thing and I don't know if I'll ever fix it, but sometimes it's better to want something and not actually get it. You know, you, you might save up for a new car or like, um, I don't know, like a really awesome jacket or something. And you're just thinking about that jacket and thinking about it. Oh, I'm going to look so great in it. And then you get it and you're like, oh, okay, well, now I have the jacket. I guess I need something else. It's like that gnawing thing inside you that just won't give up. And I don't know if it's good. Like it, it, it can inspire ambition, but also it, you're just unhappy because <laughs> you're constantly trying to get the next thing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's other ways to achieve like a deeper sense of contentment and inner peace rather than like buying the next thing or getting the next, you know, job promotion or, you know, the, there's other ways to achieve inner peace. And I think, I mean, I'm going to always put in a plug for therapy, but like to really like unpack our trauma and our pain, you know, I think like that's a, a big component of um, like really 
being with these different parts of our experience so that we can heal them and not just try to fill the void with buying the next thing and, oh, that didn't work, so I'll try to buy something else. It's like to work on it from a deeper, you know, more sustainable level, I think can actually help you get to the bottom of it versus these kind of external things. And then, you know, not to put in a plug for um, sex ed, but I just keep wanting to do that. But what you brought up earlier, Chris, about like media literacy and like, you know, like I think that's another really important part of comprehensive sex ed is helping young people kind of analyze the songs that we listen to, the advertisements, like you know, sexually explicit media, like to to understand how, you know, advertisers um, are really kind of putting a certain type of body type out there as like the standard of beauty. Um, we see that, you know, on Instagram and with filters and all of this stuff. And it's like, it's so important for young people to analyze that, like, wait a minute, you know, there's a, a very specific type of body type. And as Chris said, it's very like oftentimes times it's like white centric and it's thin and it's, you know, big breasts or, you know, like there's these things that we that we kind of absorb in the the media. And it's so important as young people to really analyze like, oh, this is like these are these beauty standards um, that the media is really pushing and um, it doesn't look like so many, so many people have, you know, so many different body types and, you know, their bodies are, are valid and worthy of joy and pleasure. And we need to be unpacking these messages so that way we're not constantly craving, you know, to get, you know, the Botox or to get, you know, that um, next trendy thing. It's like to really understand like the media has such an impact on our psyche. And, you know, when we can really analyze this, bringing in those critical thinking skills, as you mentioned before, you know, it helps the media have less power over us. So we're not constantly like, you know, trying to get that next thing to, mm-hmm. to satisfy our happiness. Or thinking a certain kind of relationship is going to make, you know, com- quote unquote, complete us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's just like, there's that concept too that's really in the media and then getting you know like it's not like you're a horrible person if you're unpartnered and like all of a sudden like when you're partnered now you know everything's okay and I I accomplished the thing I was supposed to whether it's through marriage or whatever and it's just like no that's where it starts getting really hard or it's still it's going to continue to get really hard right like there's not this like and it's not this you know like you watch movies and and you see this thing like this is how it's like this is how it's supposed to you know quote unquote, supposed to end is in that till death us do part or whatever. And we know that's not the case for the vast majority of partnerships, um, especially if we conclude the ones that don't start like end in marriage. Uh, so like there's that and like that concept of the escalator relationship, right? Like where you get on the relation, like you meet each other and then you just hop on this escalator and then you start to date, and then you you know, engage in some physical stuff and then you move in and then maybe you like you get married, maybe you have some kids and you grow old together and you hop off the escalator when you die. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there's this like and no one like really questions like that. That's how a really like that's the relationship script that a lot of people go through that monogamous sort of thing. And yet there's so many ways to like interact with people. And who's to say that that's the best relationship? Maybe it's a best friend. Maybe that's the best relationship to have. Maybe that's your healthiest relationship. Well, I, I think that marriage has been a good thing for a lot of people, yeah. but I always wonder if it's just constructed for for no reason. I mean, like you said, people think that's one of the things you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And when you do it, maybe it's not necessarily 
it doesn't work out the way you thought it would. Uh, I just wonder if it's necessary. Well, marriage is, so first of all, marriage is a legal construct, right? It's a lot of people put some religion onto it, but ultimately marriage is a, an, a contract between you, one other person, and the state of where you get married, right? So that is what marriage is. It's, it's a legal thing. It's a legal document, and it comes with it legal rights. Um, and so in some cases, especially if people do want to have children, it does make some things easier. Um, of course, you can have children and not be married. You can have children and not be partnered. And if, the, but there are some things that this sort of legal contract helps in. And if those legal things are less relevant to you, or if you have another way of navigating those other things without marriage, then yeah, like who, you know, that's, there is no need for that, for the marriage. Um, and that's like outside, that's just, again, the legal lens. And then of course there's the religious lens where there is a need for it, but you could also get married religiously potentially without the legal contract, right? You can express vows to each other in a, in a place of worship and have friends and family and have like a religious leader say that you are now married, but not actually sign, like not actually do the legal document thing. Right. So they're intertwined in most cases but again it's not like marriage is is a legality (laughs) it's not anything else that's good for the diamond industry well it's also right it's good right oh yeah no there's plenty of people who earn money off of off of weddings um and other expressions of love are also commercialized but yeah i think it's just remember when i taught human sexuality at portland state (laughs) i'm just like marriage is a legal thing like that's all it is and it mean it can mean a ton to certain people, and it also can just be that legal document that you need. Mm-hmm. Well, to bring it back around to what you guys are doing with schools and with adults, do, obviously there's 50 different states in the country, and there's a number of countries in the world. Do you find any benefit in like a federal mandated? curriculum or are you more than happy to do what you're doing now in Oregon and compare to other places? That's a great question. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I think it really would depend on what that federal (laughs) curriculum was, what the policy is, (laughs) because, you know, we know that there's some pretty abstinence heavy um, parts of the country. And so Um, you know, I think it would, as if it was, you know, shame free and truly comprehensive and inclusive, it'd have to, I mean, if there was, if there was a federal policy, um, and curriculum that kind of matched Oregon standards, then I would say maybe, but I just think that that it's just so tricky because, you know, there's, it's so divisive and, and, you know, there are states that really are not on board with comprehensive sex ed. So I, I think it's just probably very unrealistic, which you may already know that like, just because, you know, or maybe you don't know, but in my mind, it seems unrealistic. Um, If it was done in a, in a quality way, I think that would be great because right now it's just so spotty. Like what student, like what one student gets at one school to the next school, to the next school district, to the next state. It's like, it is not cohesive. 
and we are missing lots of students. And so if there was something that was more cohesive, I think that it would ensure that we are really reaching students and making sure that they are getting the education that they need. I just think that there's a lot of barriers to getting to that idea of what you're bringing up. It's like administratively would be the biggest nightmare ever. That's like where my brain just went into too. It's just like, it just would be, it would just be, I think it's, I mean, yeah, it would pretty much be as close to impossible as you could possibly imagine mm -hmm. like that. And so, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a really interesting thought exercise that I would like to chew on a little bit more, but I don't know. I really don't. <laughs> it's so difficult in this country because we're all under one banner, if you want to say that. Uh, but there are rural areas, there are poor areas, rich areas. Uh, there's so many different types of people. And it's not that you couldn't train them all the same way, but it's just so diverse. Well, the Constitution was also set up, right, to have some very basic things put in place for the the the, the United States, again, in quotes at this point. But like, but really, it was the Constitution was written to leave states to have a lot of power. So and that's how our country is is made. So to, to there's a lot of like these larger federal programs are really difficult to enact. I mean, except under times of extreme strife. So like with FDR and, you know, after world wars and things like that, it was easier to bring on federal programs, but ultimately bringing on federal programs, not easy because you've got these, right, 50 disparate, as you're saying, never mind within a state, um, you know, and especially a state like Oregon, which is just large. Like as opposed to, you know, Delaware or Rhode Island, where of course there's still a lot of variation, but boy, is it a lot tinier and does it have a lot less, you know, overall, at least geographic variation just by default in mm -hmm. terms of its size. It just seems like they would exercise logic in, because don't typically the states that practice abstinence or teach abstinence have like the highest teen pregnancy rates? Yes. You'd think they'd just be like, uh, maybe we should figure out how to do this differently because it's not working out. Change is hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really, really hard to yeah. just like, yeah, just all of a sudden just like uproot the the way things have been done for a really long time. And yeah, it, it falls in line with, I mean, I think people become more rigid the older they get. It's harder and harder because you... Maybe you've done some stuff and made some mistakes and you've changed your ways and you're like, I know that this works. I'm going to make coffee at 7 a.m. and I'm going to drive this street to work and I never get in a car wreck. Everything's perfect. I'm going to have peanut butter and jelly sandwich at lunch. Like you get in that rhythm and you like it. And then it's just difficult to to really switch anything the older you get. I mean, I'm not, that's not the case for everybody, but yeah, it's easier to just keep doing what you're doing no matter how bad it gets. I mean, I think it will be really interesting to see, you know, as Gen Z and Gen Alpha, you know, get older and older and into leadership roles um, and, you know, are the ones that are making policy and doing the sex ed, you know, I would be really curious how this will change across the country because we know that, you know, our younger generations are, you know, more progressive and more LGBTQIA plus. And, you know, it, it's going to be really interesting to see how things change just as our young people become leaders. 
you know, because you're right, the older people can get kind of stuck in their ways and they can be afraid of change. And um, but eventually our young people are going to take over the, the leadership. Eventually you can get 90 year olds out of Congress. Yeah. Well, death and taxes. right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good spot. I appreciate right. you talking with me. Thanks. It was great. It was great having, having us here. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was fun.